Hi, WorkWell listeners. I'm really excited to share that my book, Work Better Together, is officially out. Conversations with WorkWell guests and feedback from listeners like you inspired this book. It's all about how to create a more human-centered workplace. And as we return to the office for many of us, this book can help you move forward into post-pandemic life with strategies and tools to strengthen your relationships and focus on your well-being. It's available now from your favorite book retailer. If you follow me on social media, you've probably seen pictures of my adorable fur baby, Fiona. She's my beloved Jack Russell Terrier, and she is the light of my life. Our pets are treasured members of our families, and that's a good thing because they help improve and enhance our well-being in so many ways. This is the WorkWell podcast series. Hi, I'm Jen Fisher, Chief Wellbeing Officer for Deloitte, and I'm so pleased to be here with you today to talk about all things well-being. I'm here with Mark Cushing. He's the founder and CEO of the Animal Policy Group, an advocacy organization for pets. He's also the author of the book Pet Nation, the inside story of how companion animals are transforming our homes, culture, and economy. Mark, welcome to the show. Great to be on it. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm excited to dig in. So I actually usually start off by asking my guests to tell me about their story, but I feel like um, it's more appropriate to start this conversation by asking you about your own pets and what their names are. <laughs> now, I'll tell you what we have. Now, we have uh, a two-year-old puppy. He's a papillon, and that's the French word for butterfly, so they have big ears and High, high energy uh, personalities, to say the least. But we also, my wife is a serious connoisseur of cats, mm-hmm. and we have not one, not two, but three Bengal kittens. And if anyone in your audience knows Bengals, they, they're a special breed, a, a wild cat. They're like Olympic athletes, um, <laughs> and they're, they're extraordinary. And just to watch, you just, you just laugh except when you're picking up a vase they knocked over, but you're <laughs> laughing all the way. But but the names of all of our pets, they're always for designers. So uh, Louis is Louis for Louis Vuitton. We have Eve and Vera for Eve Saint Laurent and Vera Wang. And then our youngest four-month-old uh, boy kitten uh, is Jimmy for Jimmy Choo. So those, <laughs> are, those are the names, yes. Got it. I love that. Okay, so now we can transition to you. Let's hear your story. You know, how did you become passionate about pets and get into what you're doing today? Uh, Like so many great things in life, it was more accidental than anything as far as the work side. I've always enjoyed pets, but I was uh, a trial, a business trial lawyer for a lot of years, and then a partner in an international law firm based in DC. I was actually at the Ottawa, Canada airport catching a flight back to Washington in 2005 and got a phone call from what is still the largest veterinary practice group in the world. And they were leading a coalition, really the entire pet industry, related to an issue called microchipping, which is one way you identify a pet. Uh, And it was controversial at the time. And I got a solution through Congress that they hadn't expected to get, and they'd been quite frustrated. So it had the uh, wonderful effect of fooling people into thinking I'm smart and effective uh, to be a, to have the success we had. 
And I thought that'd be a, a client, you know, like Deloitte has clients and you never know what, what else will continue. And uh, 15 years later, I've got a team of eight that work with me and it's, I've been full-time in the, the pet healthcare, pet animal welfare space, pet product, and just overall pet advocacy space uh, since 2007. And uh, it just expands by the week, it seems like. So it's been a good ride. And, and along the way, I, you know, I wrote the book, Pet Nation, Inside Story of How Companion Animals Transforming Our Homes, Culture, and Economy, which they wanted this inside story of what we've all seen, but nobody had really put it all together in one, certainly one book. A complete transformation, how pets relate to people in America and their role in American culture. Um, as you know, they're everywhere. You can't go anywhere now and certainly not see dogs. And I can remember a time when they were really accessories or sideshows. And, and they certainly weren't in hospitals. They weren't in restaurants, weren't in hotels, on planes and so forth. And it's a very different world we're in now. And, and uh, uh, I think a better world for it, but but it's it's been a surprising and fun ride and, and hopefully it keeps going. Yeah, I, I think it's a better world for it too. So, um, you know, no offense to the humans out there, but I often say that, you know, I like, I like animals more than I like humans sometimes. So, <laughs> so I can certainly relate to that. Um, but, you know, you talk about in your book, you do talk about the, you know, our, our love for pets as a cultural transformation. So can you dig into that and yeah. kind of talk more about how sure. our feelings for pets have changed over time and, and why? Yeah, I, that's a great question. And, and it, it, it wasn't like somebody just announced one day that pets needed to come inside and be treated like kings and queens and sleep on top of our beds and 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 live the way they live now. But I, I, I looked deep and hard at how it occurred, and it was in the childhood of, of baby boomers mm. to start with, and one, a couple of things happened. One was you began to see in the media, you know, then it was television and commercials, uh, there's no social media and the, and the most famous dog ever named Lassie. Mm. Um, and that show people turned on and they watched Lassie every Sunday evening. Lassie's author, believe it or not, the original creator of that dog was a friend of Charles Dickens. So you can argue that it was in the early 1800s, but in truth, uh, baby boomers in the U S saw this dog, loyal, friendly, fun, active, you know, by the side of Timmy at all times. And then you began to see Rin Tin Tin and a whole series of media dogs. Some were cartoons, uh, Scooby-Doo and, and like that. And then the next step kind of the finished the media piece that just exposed people to a different way to look at pets was, were commercials. They had the craziness or the brilliant idea to put on ads that showed a car going along a California coastal highway the window opened, and in the passenger seat was a German or, or a golden retriever, and that was it. They didn't tell you what the car was. They didn't tell you about the engine, mileage, nothing. And they figured out that just showing that car and brand next to a happy dog was a magic trick. It was a secret sauce, and their sales reflected it. So you had people surrounded by pets, just seeing them in a different light, um, and it was. It was very powerful. And, and then you began to have people push the envelope to where they could take a pet. And while this was all going on, the underpinning of the entire 
change in our relationship to pets began to spread. And what was that? That's called the human-animal bond. Mm. It's a medical fact that when people engage with pets, their oxytocin level goes up, which is a source of joy and relaxation and calm and pleasure in your brain, and your cortisol level declines. And that's the source of stress and anxiety, nervousness, anxiousness. And so basically, you just feel better around pets. And, and we didn't all go to the library and study this and buy a dog or adopt a cat, but it became known and then a whole literature developed around it. My wife, who's uh, she chairs anatomy at Mayo Clinic's medical school here in Scottsdale. So she has a little bit to do with with people and, and human health, though, of course, these are cadavers in her case for teaching anatomy, but she'll take our cats and dog every time, uh, including over her husband, I'm sure. But uh, no, I, so, so you began to see this movement of pets inside. People were closer to them now, right? They weren't just out in your backyard or your courtyard. They were inside. You, this is oxytocin thing was happening. It wasn't named and called out, but literature then developed it, explained it. Then you see the explosion of studies showing how autistic families work better with a dog involved. Dogs are no longer banned in hospitals. They're therapy dogs in every hospital in America. They're part of the treatment plan. Kids going into surgery need less medication mm. if they've been with their dog for the hour before the procedure and on and on and on. And so it was, as I say, it was a revolution where the dogs and cats didn't ask for it, right? It wasn't like they said, we're going to refuse to be nice unless we get fleece beds and we sleep on top of the bed and, and design our dog food and, and so forth. But, uh, and then the, 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 the coup de grace was social media stepping in and people became, as you know, I'm sure with your friends and colleagues, became their own uh, directors and film editors, namely of their cat, their dog. And you can't, and people couldn't get enough of it. Instagram, you, know, you, you name it. I mean, it's, it's all about pets. And it, it became this connector between, you know, somebody in San Diego with a German shepherd and somebody in Portland, Maine, and they'll never meet, but they are in constant flow and back and forth, seeing each other's dogs, doing things, funny things, you know, uh, heroic things. And uh, it was this force that was happening. And we kind of saw it sort of. And then all of a sudden, it ju we just woke up one day and went, my God, dogs are everywhere. And New York's my favorite part of the story. Because if you go down any, uh, I know it's with COVID, it's, it's less common. But when you go down a, uh, any street in Manhattan, you'll just see a dog walker with like eight Afghans that are like horses. And, and, and the people have to kind of walk around them. They, they, don't, they don't get off the sidewalk when you're coming like it's uh, the, your ter territory, not theirs. And it's, uh, and it's a great uh, small D democratic leveler, right? Two people meet with a dog who would never have said hello to each other. They probably wouldn't even have had eye contact. And if you walk a dog and you see someone with a dog, you stop. It's a 15-minute conversation. You don't talk about where'd you go to school, what kind of car you drive, where do you work, how much money do you make, none of that. What's your dog's name? What's she like to eat? What's she like to play with? What's your favorite toy? And and your friends. And it's there's this powerful effect 
that's been captured in in an academic phrase, but it's pretty easy to understand called the social capital of pets. Mm -hmm. And there was a study done in Perth on the western edge of Australia. I got a chance to meet with the, uh, the principal scientists involved, and we duplicated it in San Diego, Portland, Oregon, where I'm from originally, and Nashville. And what did it show? Try to figure out what makes a neighborhood or a community work, reduces stress, builds trust, neighbors get to know each other. There's just a general goodwill at play in a community versus some other community. What's the factor? Is it churches, schools, sports, music, politics? I'm sure not. Or pets? And guess what? You know the answer. Pets won. In every study, it was pets, which shocked me. I mean, I'd never assigned it that special status. And that was that just tied it all together. So that adds up to what I, you know, I call in my book Pet Nation. And it's not a fad. You know, it's not stopping anytime soon. It's really a whole transformation. And millennials and Gen Zs now are the biggest pet owning group in the country. They had pets as kids. You think their children aren't going to have pets? They're going to have more pets. <laughs> not one dog, two dogs. Not one dog and a cat, but one or two. So it's it's, it's quite a story. Yeah. I mean, thank you. So much of that resonates with me. Um, I think in particular, I have, I have a, a Jack Russell Terrier. Her name is Fiona. And um, you know, I, when I walk her, I I don't know the names of the owners of the other dogs, but I know all the dogs' names. <laughs> that's it. I mean, that's the story right there. You yeah, know. you know. So and and you know and and you know they are people that I see every single day, and our dogs play with each other on their walks, and I play with their dogs, and they play with my dogs, and we talk all about our dogs, but I I don't know anything about the owner. <laughs> No, you actually walk up and say hi to the dog. Yeah, yeah. I mean, so. you know, isn't that funny? And you don't think it's rude to not say, oh, no, by the way, uh, Steve, nice to, nice to see you. It's like you don't even know Steve's name. Yeah. So, but, and and I mean, I, when I think about social capital, especially like in the workplace, in particular, be, you know, probably because of COVID, you know, when everything for us transition to a virtual world. I mean, you know, there's, I was on a call yesterday and, and the person's cat was sitting on their lap and I've brought Fiona to many of my, you know, my team calls. And we even had calls where we, you know, purposely kind of designate them as, you know, calls where we're bringing our pets and, you know, everybody, the tone of the, of the, of the, of the call or the meeting just changes because it opens up with everybody, you know, giggling and cooing and eyeing and oh, so cute. And, (laughs) you know, and so. um. No, that's, that's very powerful. And it's now increasingly common. I, I think the subject of pets in the workplace, as well as the impact post COVID of, of remote working at home to be with your pet it's the most significant, not issue, but kind of new trend wave surging through the pet world because it plays on both ends. If, if, if I'm going to come back to the company and change that policy and at least once a week or maybe every day, if I want to bring my dog, I can bring my dog. If you really want me to work for you, I'm not coming in five days. I'm spending at least three days at home with my dog um, and my cat, uh, depending <laughs> and, and, and pets don't been, always want us want us around as much as dogs, right? <laughs> well, that, there's a great phrase, you know, dogs have owners and cats have staff, <laughs> and, and it's it's so true. But 
you know, 10 years ago, even certainly 20 years ago, this conversation in the last two minutes would have seemed absurd to people. What do you mean, bring your dog to work? What do you mean you're going to stay home? Right. You can hang out with your dog, just put them in a crate or put them in the backyard and you'll see them at six o'clock. That's over. I mean, millennials aren't going to do that. They're just, they're just not interested. And uh, the interesting, uh, and I think we'll get to this, um, there was a seminal study done. They were in the field in 2016, maybe 2017. So it was, it was current by Carrie O'Hara, PhD from UCLA, who at the time was with, with a Nationwide Pet Insurance. She now uh, is a partner of mine uh, in, in APG O'Hara Research Analytics. So, so I, I, we now have, uh, we work together often. And she did the study and it was 1,500 employees of companies of 100 employers or more. 1,000 of the 1,500 owned pets and 500 didn't. And it was a comprehensive study, you know, very small margin of error. And it was staggering in two respects, how much more all the employees felt better about their company, liked their boss better, liked their co-employees better. Everything about it wanted to stay longer, would turn down other jobs if the company was pet friendly. And there was virtually no distinction in the level of that enthusiasm between pet owning employees and those that didn't. So even employees that didn't have dogs liked their company better if they had a, a pet-friendly uh, policy. It was a range of pet-friendly policies, not just yeah. having dogs in the building. But uh, it really it opened the eyes of a lot of people. And, I, and I, I think more than any other study that's been done in the industry, this one just flipped things on their head. And people thought, yeah, that's how I feel. But I assumed nobody else did. And, yeah. and, and so that's, you know, that's where we are now. Yeah. I mean, it, it is, you know, interesting, just a, another kind of little tidbit at Deloitte. Uh, one of our benefits that we offer to our people is pet insurance. Um, yeah. and, and it is one of our most popular benefits. <laughs> so, mm-hmm. you know, things like that, like you said, I mean, that wouldn't, that, that would have been unheard of, or people would have thought you were, you know, nuts to even offer that or bring that up, you know, several years ago, well, but now. No, that's yeah. true. And one of the benefits alongside that has been uh, free calls, uh, telemedicine free calls mm-hmm. to, to get advice. We just got a puppy, you know, it's doing this. What, what should we do or not do? And a, a very popular, um, you know, pet insurance is, is an interesting topic on its own. <laughs> just five years ago, we were just barely above 1% of pet owners with pet insurance. And even today, it's only at 4%. Now that's, that's quadruple growth if you look at it that way. Right, you're at Deloitte. You can. There's ways to look at numbers. So you look at that number and go, "That's dramatic and dynamic growth," which it is. But it's still only four percent. But that number is is going to double, and then it's going to double, and it's going to double again soon. You can just see millennials uh, going. You know what? Bad things can happen to pets: injuries, you know, illnesses, uh, chronic conditions. And you, you need to be prepared for it. And they want the same level of health care for their pets as themselves. And their so kids, it, yeah, it, I mean, they're like kids. <laughs> yeah, I'm not, so I'm not surprised that, yeah. that the pet insurance is popular with Deloitte uh, employees. So you had mentioned before the human 
animal bond. And you talk about this a lot in your book. So can you explain more about that? Maybe the evolution of that, yeah. how it all came about and yeah. what the research says? Great question. So if you go back to the 1970s, a small group of behavioral psychologists and veterinarians who probably could have met, you know, in, in, a, in a phone booth, got together and began to look at studies that had been isolated and, and in many cases dismissed as, you know, kind of folk wisdom, like your grandmother's soup remedy for the flu or something. I mean, it was like, yeah, we know we feel better around pets, but, but let's not make a science out of it. Let's not claim too much. So research began, as is always the pattern, and then, you know, two, five, 10, 100 academicians get involved. And between the 70s and 90s, the phrase itself, human-animal bond, was created. And you began to see what is now at the Purdue University College of Veterinary Medicine's library has 32,000 entries related to the human-animal bond. Now, those aren't 32,000 separate peer-reviewed research studies. I don't want to make that claim, but that's how many entries one library has on the subject. So there are scores of ongoing research projects today and, and, and going back 10, 15 years. And they're really looking at every aspect of people either in troublesome situations or just their daily life, what the impact or presence of pets, usually dogs, but not limited to dogs means. Uh, soldiers back from Afghanistan and Iraq with uh, PTSD, dramatic uh, uh, improvement at, at a faster rate if a dog's involved in their therapy, big time. Um, teenage girls that have been uh, victims, sadly, of, of some form of sexual abuse, therapy involving dogs or, or, or horses, just, mm -hmm. just that relationship playing a critical role in their recovery emotionally. Um, and seniors that are in nursing homes not eating adequately, and that's a chronic issue. You know, you have people losing weight and not able to sustain themselves. The, the mere presence of an aquarium and watching how fish eat on a regular basis has had a measurable impact on them eating regularly themselves, right? Um, and, and then you go to uh, children in school, sociability, paying attention, kindness towards their classmates, study after study now, the presence of a pet makes a measurable, significant impact. And, and there's a long, long list. I mean, it, it's, and it's, it's an exciting field to study because there's so many aspects that haven't been looked at yet. So um, it, there's a science to this. It's, it's by no means just kind of a good, happy feeling. When did pets become pets? Like when did, you know, animals or dogs become domesticated and how did that all come about? It, it, it all depends. And, and, you know, full disclosure to your audience, um, at Stanford, I majored in medieval and Renaissance history, which <laughs> it, it, it's actually relevant. So with dogs, dogs were companions, um, and so there was always an element of, of enjoying the companionship of your dog. But when people were hunters, right, and farmers, dogs were working animals. And, and, and they were, I'm sure, good companions. So I don't want to make them sound like they were just, you know, factory units. No, they were, they were workers, though, primarily. Cats 
basically, unless you were a king or queen or Karl Lagerfeld um, or, or Egyptian, you know, prince, cats were very much limited to the elite and, and they weren't pets in any broad sense. Now let's go, let's move up to late 1700s, early 1800s. All right. Dog situation is about the same. Cats got into the United States on ships coming from Europe. And they had one job. They were sanitary workers. Their job was to catch and kill mice and rats on the boat or on the ship so that the food and probably the liquor too, but the food of the, uh, the crew wasn't consumed by rats and mice. Then for about 50 years in the eastern seaboard cities, Boston, New York, Philadelphia, Baltimore, Detroit, Chicago, heading into the Midwest, cats were the primary sanitary workers for cities to do what? To get rid of rats and mice on the street and in homes and in factories and restaurants and things like that. Then one day they all got fired and, and worse than getting fired as public health came into play, um, they were euthanized mm. at the millions level. I mean, cats went from bless those little cats for killing all the mice and rats and keeping us healthy to uh, we've got people to do that now. So, uh, and, and they were killed literally by the millions and they're the comeback kids because now <laughs> there's roughly the same number of cats, you know, about 90 million pet cats and 90 million or so uh, pet dogs in America. And they completely transformed, and, and it was it, it, there. It was slower. Cats were outside; they want to be independent anyway. But they began to enjoy sleeping inside. Who wouldn't? Food inside, you know, that's nice. Uh, an extra, you know, bowl of milk or something. And it was more gradual in the '40s, '50s, '60s, and then uh, it just accelerated like everything with pets. Uh, 1980s, 90s, and 2000s. So even in uh, COVID now, you'll go to shelters, which have always had too many cats, and there are shelters now that, that don't have a shortage, but there's a lot fewer. Right. And I think people discovered that cats are wonderful company, and you can go away for a weekend, right? You know, they, they, they require less care because <laughs> they want less care. You yeah. know, they, you know a, a cat, it's like, feed me, now stop. Pet me. Now stop petting me. Okay. Come over here. No, go over there. I mean, it's they're, on they're, my terms, <laughs> everything's on their terms and, yeah. and, and they're pretty self-sufficient. You know, dogs are, what do you want to do? I'll do it. Whatever you want. Let's <laughs> do it right now. And let's keep doing it, you know, for the next eight hours. And uh, cat, cats are so different. And, and, and that we talk about dogs and cats, there are a significant number of, of, uh, other pets. I, I do right. a chapter in my book on what I, I think I call other pets. Uh, and and that's, those are meaningful. They have serious beneficial value and enjoyment for people, but there's not as many right. uh, as there are cats and dogs. And, and what's your, you know, the, the, the emotional support animal kind of debate? <laughs> well, what What's your, your stance? You know, I, I live in Miami. And so, you know, Miami International Airport is kind of famous for the emotional support peacock um, that somebody wanted to take on an airplane once. What's your, yeah. your, I mean, obviously there's huge emotional benefits to any type of animal, I it's, think, but you know, this big debate that's going on around, you know, that debate's, that debate's yeah. not going away. And, and it, it's funny, you know, before you said where you lived, I mean, I was immediately thinking of that because 
it's been the subject of legislation and editorials yeah. and yeah. homeowners associations and all the above. So here's here's where it is. You have the uh, service dogs that are in a different category. There's right. there's standard certification involved and and people you know it began originally with you know dogs for the blind and and has expanded of course. Um, it, Emotional support animals, there is not a recognized standard and process. And because there's no standards, it, it, we're going to debate this forever, right? Because yeah. it's, it's, it's your personal opinion. And I keep waiting for when a lot of people are going to rise up and say, this group of dogs mainly, but animals, deserves a better status and process and treatment and standards. And it doesn't seem to get there yet. So uh, if we did this podcast in 10 years, my guess is it'd still be a debate. You know, it's, it's, it doesn't seem to be getting resolved. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, interesting and unfortunate. I want it to get resolved. (laughs) Yeah. And uh, you know, my, you know, we take, you know, we take our dog with us, uh, not, we just, you know, uh, pay to have our dog go with us. We, We don't, Claim him to be, uh, and my wife would be strong and happy uh, without him. But you know, he clearly you know calms her, and you know, on a on a flight, you know, mm-hmm. it's, it's more enjoyable. All all these things. So I don't dispute that they play that role. But it's uh, until you get standards, right? And you have a process. Everyone's going to have one silly example for every good example, right? Right, right. The crocodile in Pittsburgh versus, you know, the cute. Uh, now you've got a Jack Russell. Those, those are amazing dogs. Wow. They are, yeah, and she's she's our second one. So uh, we okay. had a, another one previously, Jake. Um, and yeah, I mean, we just I, we had to, you know, we had to put him to sleep. He had cancer, and I think that was the single hardest day of my life. But then I, you know, I wanted another Jack Russell right away. Um, and, and my husband was like, no, no, I need some time. I need some time. But I think I tortured him, you know, enough yep. to, where, <laughs> to where he was like, okay, fine, we can get another dog. <laughs> Everybody's different about yeah. that. I, I'm, I'm of the camp, you know, we lost two cats this year. Um, and we now have three Bengals. And, it, you know, we talked, you know, my wife, Natalie, and I, uh, and it just, it didn't make sense for her. She enjoyed cats her entire life. It didn't make sense to say, well, let's wait a year. Yeah. It was just a year of your life. You're going to go without the, the, the benefit of, of, of a pet or a type of pet that you really, uh, you enjoy so much. Now, I have one good Jack Russell story, a very dear friend, uh, lives in San Antonio involved in animal welfare, uh, very, very smart, very powerful person. And she's a big Jack Russell connoisseur. <laughs> she, we were talking about coyotes because the desert where I live and then Texas, you know, coyotes are, they're part of everybody's life in America yeah. now. It seems like, but, uh, uh, a coyote attacked another mm-hmm. dog that was part, I don't know if it was part of her family, but, but a neighbor's dog, but it was about a hundred yards away. And her Jack Russell was oh, on yeah. the porch and saw, you probably know what, he, what, what I'm going to tell you. He takes off. She goes running after him because she can hear the coyote and, and the, the fracas that he's involved in. And that Jack Russell ran and jumped on the back of that coyote to pull him off that other dog. 
got hurt. You know, the coyote wasn't without defenses, right? Right. And, and uh, uh, the coyote survived and whimpered away, and her Jack Russell survived. But I thought well, that's a serious dog, you know, because yeah. I'm sure he spotted about 20 pounds at least, maybe 30 pounds to the coyote. Yeah, they are amazing dogs, and I and unfortunately, I think sometimes they get a bad rap because they're high energy. <laughs> you know, just like I mean, any other dogs, right? You have to make sure you walk them enough and give them enough activity, and make sure. And it's funny because before we started recording the podcast today, usually I, I escort Fiona out of the room, but since we were talking about pets, I decided to leave her in the room because if she barks or squeaks her toys, it's just appropriate for this podcast. <laughs> it, it wouldn't be out of place but but she's been sleeping the whole time of course the one the one podcast where i needed her to bark or squeak her toy she's been asleep um, the entire time <laughs> say, say hi for me when she wakes up i i, I will absolutely so l- let me ask you do you have a favorite story about how a pet changed or improved someone's life well oh, here's what i know i including recently with with close close friends and in some cases family where people passed away due to covid and it was always a premature death right mm-hmm. it was not a death at the end of a long convalescence where you knew it was you'd had time to process it right i've had i've had more people tell me and in two cases i've observed it uh, very close firsthand that it was their dog, and in a couple of cases, cat, but it was their pet that just kind of di- didn't calm them down, didn't make them feel better, didn't make them stop grieving. Right? It wasn't. It wasn't that role. You know, they're, it's, it, they're not a they're not uh, a drug you take, and you don't feel in, any pain. But but it was the pet that kind of brought them back to just a daily routine that brought some joy back into their lives and just allowed them to begin to process it. Um, and, and partly because pets don't live a long time. You know, it, it, you know, I always tell people pets, it's not just an investment financially, but pets is an emotional investment because they don't live a long time. Yeah. 20 years for a cat's possible, but amazing. 12 years for a dog is a good, good run, right? 16, maybe. I mean, it's, you know, and it's, uh, so you have to be prepared, you know. We put two pets down this year, and or one put down, one uh, sneaked out uh, in the desert. That's not a healthy thing to do, and never came back. Mm. Um, but so th- th- those aren't like fun stories. But I've just I've seen the power as much as a friend's comforting words or your partner's comforting words. Just having the dog on your lap, having and that's that aspect. Just the physical joy of petting a dog or petting a cat and just having them rest next to you. And it just kind of began to warm people back up. I don't know if that makes sense, but that that's the first thing that comes to mind. Yeah. I I mean, it makes, it makes a lot of sense. I think, uh, you know, it's, um, you know, especially with a dog, right? I mean, the, the dog still has, regardless of what's going on in the world or your life. And my husband and I talked a lot about this during the pandemic. I mean, 
you know, Fiona has no idea that there's a global pandemic. She still needs to go for a walk, <laughs> you know? And so, you know, re regardless of, you know, whether we, whether or not we wanted to get out and do something, she was looking at us like, all right, people, when are we going walking? <laughs> yeah, what did I do to make you mad at me? Could yeah, I, could exactly. I so, you know, they, they just, you know, they, they kind of force you to, to, to get out and, to, to take care of them because you you have to. Um, and we've talked about that a lot. So is there, you know, if, if you could say if there was one main thing or kind of a, a theme that you want people to take away from your book, Pet Nation, what would that be? Yeah, it, it'd be this, that um, pets, in fact, make your personal life better. They make you healthier. And they build your network of friends and people you trust in the world, period. And there's nothing else that quite does it so consistently as pets. And they'll do it every day, you know, that they're just steady. And if you don't have a pet, try one. And if you have one dog, you know what? Your dog would like a playmate. Um, I guess I'm talking to you too. I mean, you know, if you don't be afraid to have that second dog or and guess what? Dogs and cats, believe it or not, get along. But seriously, I, I, I would just tell people, uh, whatever you've heard from somebody about, well, a kitty litter box is a pain or feeding a dog and cat every day. You know what? It's delivered to you. There's technology. Guess what? The world's figured out how to make it easy to have pets. Um, and, and particularly people that maybe their kids are gone and they think, well, I can't take care of a pet anymore. I, I think the last 25 years of your life is maybe the time you need a pet the most. So mm. don't, uh, don't, don't be shy. Give, give it a try. I think you'll be surprised. But, yeah. but by the way, be prepared to wait on a waiting list. Unfortunately, right now, it's not, it's not easy to find a dog or, uh, particularly. The pandemic has really kind of impacted that, right? It, Just the availability a, or in the number of people. It's, it's, it, we've had a shortage of dogs documented for at least the last seven years, but mm. the pandemic really spiked it. It, it, it kind of put it on steroids. And so the prices have gone up. The availability has gone up. Sh many shelters, you'll have listeners go, oh, my God, our shelter is still full. But most aren't. And, and most metro shelters, um, the, the adoptable dogs are out the door before the weekend starts. You know, you, you, you can't show up on a Saturday and say, hey, we were thinking about adopting a dog. What do you have for me? Right. Most will say we don't have anything. So it's a, I work on that. There's two great shortages right now affecting pets. One's shortages of dogs. The second is shortages of veterinarians. Mm. Um, and those, those are acute problems and, they're, and they have to get addressed. And that's a lot of what I, I, this morning or early this afternoon before we got on this call, that's what I spent my day working on because those are, those are tough to solve, but uh, you got to start somewhere. Yeah, absolutely. And, I, and and you know what you said about kind of the the theme or the takeaway, what you get in return is is so much more than what you, you know, what you give. You know, that you can't put a price tag on that really. No, it's it's a great decision. Well, I this has been a fun conversation. It uh, yeah. uh and you know what? Uh my cats of course chose to hang out with my wife in her <laughs> office. And and, and and so they're not here to meow for me or my my uh, papillon to bark, but they I think they have a sense this is what I do for a living because they see pictures around me and think, I don't know why he's got all those other dogs and cats in his life. We, we, they're much smarter than we give them credit for sometimes. <laughs> you know what? Our, our, 
one of our Bengals did this three weeks ago, three days in a row. And then the little one, the four month old saw it. They turn on my light above my bed when they're hungry in the morning at 530. I could not. I woke up and thought, what is this light doing? And I turned to my wife and said, Natalie, she's like, she pointed behind me. And I looked up and there was Vera. <laughs> had done this, did it three days in a row. I, I couldn't get mad. I was like almost crying, laughing so hard. I couldn't believe it. And then little Jimmy Chu figured it out. And so he, <laughs> if she doesn't do it, he hops up because he loves to eat, you know, and he popped the light on, you know, not, not my favorite thing, but you know what? All I can do is applaud them. It's like, yes, how, how smart are you guys? You yeah. can't get mad. Absolutely. Well, well, Mark, this was, like you said, this was a great conversation. Um, like just so much goodness in, in this conversation. I was smiling the whole time. So, you know, even talking about pets um, <laughs> makes us feel better. So thank you. Thank you for your time. Thank you for your wisdom. Thanks a lot. Good luck with, uh, with Fiona and have, have a great rest of the year. I'm so grateful Mark could be with us today to talk about our love for pets. Thank you to our producers, Rivet360, and our listeners. You can find the WorkWell podcast series on Deloitte.com, or you can visit various podcatchers using the keyword WorkWell, all one word, to hear more. And if you like the show, don't forget to subscribe so you get all of our future episodes. If you have a topic you'd like to hear on the WorkWell podcast series, or maybe a story you would like to share, please reach out to me on LinkedIn. My profile is under the name Jen Fisher, or on Twitter at JenFish23. We're always open to your recommendations and feedback. And of course, if you like what you hear, please share, post, and like this podcast. Thank you and be well.